diving into the Queen City, seeing what the voices are saying. This is N-C-L-T. Hey everyone, this is your host Matthew Barnes of NCLT, where we dive into the Queen City and see what some of the voices are saying. Uh, today I have with us someone who was formerly singing in the Cleveland Symphony Choir. He, was a, he got his master's degree at Carnegie Mellon and he was the assistant director of the Mendelssohn Choir in Pittsburgh. Please welcome Opera Carolina director James Mina. Gee, Matthew, that's ancient history. <laughs> uh, I'd forgotten those were, those were when I was your age, well, probably younger. Okay, uh, well, excellent. Well, I'm glad you have us on the show today, maybe because yeah. bring up to, to speed on some of your more current uh, accomplishments, of which there are many, I'm sure. But um, speaking of, you obviously have a long history in music, and you come from a family of musicians. So I read that your father was a musician, composer as well. Yeah, you know, it's um, my father uh, was a Greek Orthodox priest. Um, and for those people who are out there who are shocked, in, um, Greek Orthodox priests are allowed to get married. So it was okay. <laughs> yes. Um, and he was a trained musician and a composer of church music. Okay. Primarily for, for the Greek church. And um, I don't want to say gave it up, but, you know, put it aside uh, when he went into the priesthood. But mm -hmm. music was not really a big part of our, our family life other than, you know, uh, hearing music sometimes played on, on the stereo in those days. Um, and, of course, singing in church, which is something that's very familiar for everybody or a lot of people, I'm mm -hmm. sure. Um, and really, I was the first um, of my family to actually become a trained musician and pursue it as a career, uh, which is, I think they all thought I was crazy. In fact, I, <laughs> I know they thought I was all crazy. They all thought I was crazy. But, you know, it's worked out. I've been in the uh, opera world for 40 years, um, started off as a symphony and opera conductor and just sort of gravitated to the opera world which has been uh, a good journey yeah the world of opera is very it's a very attractive role because it's a very full it encompasses all the other musicians all the other soloists the choirs the orchestra um what was it how did you get you did you start as an instrumentalist and then move into opera or did you have yeah, been a principal interest as in a opera? kid um, as a kid i started off as a cellist then uh, migrated to a cello and piano and then migrated to violin um, always kept the piano as a um, secondary or first uh, principal instrument studied singing for a while um, so it's a pretty diverse I played the trumpet for a year and a half and realized i didn't like that um, played classical guitar for a couple of years. One of my uh, teachers in undergrad school was a classical guitarist and it was fabulous, absolutely loved it. And I think if I ever find the time, I will find a nice uh, guitar and, and, and re-study uh, classical guitar because mm -hmm. it's I absolutely adore it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I've always been in music. I'm one of those really strange people that always knew I wanted to be a musician, always knew I wanted to be a conductor and have pursued that uh, throughout my career so you know it's it's odd when i tell people that because most <laughs> of the time particularly for you know teenagers and and young adults it's not unusual to change your career one or two times yeah and find out what's out in the world and 
like yourself, you know, see what the world has to offer and then decide where you want to land. That wasn't my path at all. It was always a fairly straight line uh, in music and as uh, and to become a conductor. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. But um, was, were there like any particular performances in your youth that kind of struck you or any like recordings or like who were some of your uh, people that you really admired listening to growing up? You know, there's such well, a... you know, I'll tell you, you know, <laughs> so growing up in the 60s and 70s as I did, um, you know, the the music of the time actually was Motown. <laughs> yes. And, yes. you know, that was it as a, as a teenager. Uh, discovering Motown was fabulous. It mm. was it was the best. I mean, there was always the classical music was always there, but you know, um, following popular singing was uh, you know in that time particularly was really fantastic. Yeah. From a classical world, you know, there are great performances that I was able to hear that really helped propel uh, my thinking about what I wanted to do. Um, mostly from the time I was a late teenager and into college, uh, hearing the Cleveland Orchestra, for example, was just a, a revelation. First time I heard a performance by the Metropolitan Opera, it was just, you know, a revelation, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but always those two tracks, and I, and I suspect that's for a lot of people, especially people who like classical music. Yeah. Doesn't mean that you don't listen to other forms of yeah. music and don't appreciate them and don't like them. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Okay. Well, I've, I've heard you came, you came to Opera Caroline in the year 2000, I believe. Mm -hmm. So um, what was the change that brought you moving to Charlotte? How was the transition moving? <laughs> you know, Matthew, it was a practical decision. We were in Cleveland. I was uh, the conductor of the Cleveland Ballet. I was also the associate conductor of the symphony in Toledo and the principal conductor of the opera in Toledo and guest conducting. Pretty much I was on the road 10 months out of the year. Yeah. Either in a rehearsal or in a performance in one of those cities or guest conducting somewhere. And that's really hard on a family. I can imagine. And um, so we made the decision when the position at Opera Carolina opened up to move here. Mm -hmm. You know, we took a good hard look at Charlotte, good family oriented city, um, a place that we really thought would be good for our two daughters at that time. And so just picked up and came south and you know like any adventure you don't quite know what you're doing you make the best judgment you can and it, it's been great yeah, and i appreciate the weather i imagine a little <laughs> yeah you know it was very funny because uh, moving from cleveland that we actually brought our snow shovel down here mm -hmm. oh. <laughs> and, I, and i had it in my garage for about three years waiting for you know the, the january snow and it never came so needless yeah. to say we don't have a snow shovel in our <laughs> garage anymore awesome awesome okay so there's obviously like different connotations like with the word and concept of opera. So what do you think of or how would you describe opera to someone who's maybe only has a social knowledge of what an opera is and what it means? Well, you know, most people who have a stereotypical idea of opera um, get it from commercials and from pop culture, mm -hmm. you know, where it's about the uh, the the heavy set soprano on stage with the horns and carrying a spear and screaming yes. over an orchestra to a bunch of rich people. Yes. <laughs> that's not that's not what it is at all. Uh, opera is um, the best way to describe it, I guess, is to call it like a a musical mm -hmm. on steroids. 
That's fair. It's bigger. That's why we call it grand opera. The sets are bigger. The singing is bigger. The orchestras are bigger. The the costumes are bigger. The lighting is bigger. Mm -hmm. We are telling classic stories of the human spirit, whether it's uh, a piece like Cyrano that we're doing in two weeks, which is one of the most famous love stories ever. Uh, Cyrano with his nose, who, <laughs> who is in love with the beautiful Roxanne, who, but she's in love with the young Lieutenant Christian. And, um, you know, it's actually, those who don't know the classic story of Cyrano, it's um, the story that was based on Roxanne, that movie in okay. 1987 of Steve Martin or Hitch. Oh, okay, yeah. 2005 with Will Smith. You know, that's the story. Okay, you know, (laughs) it's the guy, it's the outcast guy, you know, we might call him a nerd or the geek who, you know, who's in love with the beautiful girl and has no way to figure out how to, how to get the girl. But really, it's not about his appearance. It's Mm -hmm. about his character. Uh, Okay. And that's the story of Siren. It's great. Um, And I would tell all the ladies Come to Cyrano and bring Kleenex. And (laughs) guys, you know, this is the best, this is the best date night ever. Guaranteed. Definitely uh, definitely make plans to come see that. That's opening in a couple of weeks, right? Like, opens November 4th, uh, 4th and 9th at oh, the Bell Theater. Oh, certainly, certainly. And, but it goes, and it goes to show, uh, you have those, that's the thing, like people sit there and say, oh, they have this idea of opera, not realizing they're taking it in a dozen different ways, either, right. you know, through cartoons. I believe Rent was also an adaptation of a Verdi opera. Rent, Rent well, actually, it's a, an adaptation of La Boheme by Puccini. Puccini, okay. Yeah. Again, <laughs> a right. really romantic, you know, kind of story about love and reality. You know? <clears throat> yes. Um, what I like about uh, opera today is companies always, obviously, have to make it more attractive to a modern audience and so I've had the pleasure of seeing both The Girl in the West mm-hmm. and uh, Romeo and Juliet by the Opera Carolina and what struck me was the sets they were very they were they were just mind-blowing they were fantastic mm-hmm. and I know in The Girl in the West you wrote you worked with a uh, Italian designer Ivan Stefanuti I mm-hmm. believe mm-hmm. now was that the first time you had worked with an outside designer like outside the company or had you had like a root heritage no we use we use different designers for different productions mm-hmm. um we have a, a team here at the opera who do a lot of the digital projections. Mm-hmm. That's been one of the great innovations of the last 15 years where the technology has allowed us to get away from saint, uh, painted scenery mm-hmm. and using projection uh, technology yes. to change the visual elements as we're going on through a piece. Uh, which allows the audience to really become visually engaged with the production as well as following the drama and listening to the great music and the orchestra and the singing. So you have all of those aspects that uh, an audience can be engaged with as they're listening and watching an opera. It's the great storytelling, it's the famous melodies, it's the beautiful orchestra, and it's this lavish visual. Yeah element uh, which is really really exciting and it's quite new in the opera world okay I do I have noticed a little bit more projectionist and I, I think it looks worked out really well mm-hmm. and I guess the thing about operas is they're staged for brief periods of time like you know it might run for a week or it might run mm-hmm. you know for like two weeks at the most or something so as opposed to a stage play which might run like 15 20 performances in like 10 days you're allowed to have a little bit more liberty in crafting solid sets that 
have that grandeur as opposed to where a play and needs to be taken down in three days or last Well, you know, Matthew, the uh, part of that is a function of the theater because the mm -hmm. theater seats almost 2,000 seats. Okay. So if we were in a, let's say, a 900-seat opera house like we have in Parma, Italy, for mm -hmm. example, where, or Pisa or uh, Luca, where our Girl of the West production is now playing, okay. um, where those, you know, in Luca, which is Puccini's hometown, it's 900 seats in that theater. <laughs> So you end up doing multiple performances, uh, and it's a much different aesthetic than, than here in Charlotte, where we've got 2,000 seats yes. and do fewer performances. Um, but you know the, the whole idea of creating visual productions is really also kind of new with opera. You know, you used to have the big old clunky sets that would take 20 minutes to change and you know you'd be there for three and a half hours because the sets were so big now it's unusual for any of our performances to last more than two hours and 45 minutes okay. with an intermission which mm -hmm. is also very contemporary yeah you know an intermission with one intermission you know and, and audiences like to come to the theater have one intermission oh you're fine and and then um, enjoy the evening and then go. Yeah. And that's all part of making opera contemporary. I guess that's one thing. As a conductor, you've traveled, you've uh, conducted other orchestras internationally. Do you see a big difference in the way opera's treated internationally and in the U.S.? Because, like, um, I believe you said, I believe I want to say it was the Girl of the West uh, company that toured as a company, which was rare for U.S. production to do that. Am I correct? So do you want to talk a little bit about the distinctions between like international opera and U.S. opera and how it's approached? Um, you know, it depends which country you're talking about. The Europeans are more um, interested in different sorts of interpretations of, of the operas. So you'll see, for example, in Germany, for example, you'll see very cutting edge contemporary um, productions, which sometimes make absolutely no sense with the piece. <laughs> yeah. um, sometimes they do, most of the times they don't. We like to call these Euro trash. Uh, I feel like they I are kind of, they are kind of trashy productions. Uh, um, in Italy, you see less of it. You see more creative, um, more creative productions in, in Italian theaters, although there are their share of really lousy productions also uh, in some Italian theaters. American audiences tend to be more conservative. American audiences want to see um, Cyrano set in the 17th century. They want to see Carmen set in the time mm. period it was written, for example. Now, you can adapt the visual elements to make them creative, mm -hmm. but you can't set Carmen in... 2017, yeah. you know, in Uptown Charlotte. I guess you could if you were a really brilliant director, but <laughs> most, you know, American audiences are going to go, yeah, that doesn't work for me. Yeah. Um, so you do see a difference in the aesthetic. So uh, with the Girl of the West having Stefanuti direct this, mm -hmm. he, des he designed that production and directed it for Italian theaters. Okay. And we presented it here, and then it opened the New York uh, City Opera season this past September, and now it's in uh, Sardinia, in Cagliari, in the in the capital. And then I meet up with the production in Lucca, Puccini's hometown, this in November, 
and then we're in Pisa, Livorno, Modena, and Ravenna uh, next year. That's very unusual, and that's a that's a a um, collaboration that I brokered. It's three years now. It took um, with all of those all of those theaters. Yeah. Awesome. That's really impressive. I, that's a uh, that's great to hear, and it's kind of good to know that you're having that active involvement in getting. Opera Carolina's kind of name out there and involvement. You know, Opera Carolina has a superb reputation uh, internationally. Mm. Um, we are often featured in major magazines in Europe uh, for the work that we're doing, for the kinds of productions, the artists that we have here. Um, we're also very well regarded within within the United States. I, I often feel like we're our reputation is higher outside of Charlotte than it is in Charlotte, but then maybe that's just my own paranoia. It could be. Well, from what I've seen, I've seen a lot of, you know, symphonies, records across the world. This is definitely cream of the crop, in my opinion. I was, um, uh, during that performance of The Girl in the West, you kind of mentioned, this is a little bit more of your community involvement. You mentioned something about voting. I can't remember the exact nuances. There's like a little pamphlet that kind of, encourage us to go out and vote for the right of the arts in the city of Charlotte. Do you remember the new... Um, I think that was about tax reform. Tax reforms, okay. Um, you know, which of course uh, the administration in Washington is now um, debating. And one of the things that's been bantered about is getting rid of the charitable deduction. Yeah. So, you know, I'd love some of my colleagues um, complain that we don't get, meaning the arts institutions don't get enough support from the government, like they do in Canada, for example, um, where my colleagues in Montreal get 50, 60% of their money, their annual budget from the provincial and the federal government. Yeah. What they forget is that in the, in the US tax code, and we are unique in the world, the U.S. tax code allows individuals and corporations to make charitable donations to nonprofit institutions and take that as a tax deduction. Mm -hmm. So that, by virtue of that um, charitable deduction clause, which I think I forget which amendment it is in the IRS code, by virtue of that, the federal government is subsidizing arts activity in this nation in the billions of dollars. When you look at the total amount that is donated to nonprofit institutions, not just arts institutions, but the United Way, to um, any human services, all of that falls under the charitable deduction clause. Mm -hmm. And so when they start talking about getting rid of that, in order to shore up the national debt, which is, you know, I love that, it's <laughs> awful, you know. How many times have we sent more money to Washington only to watch it be, you know, yeah. petered away? Um, what they are really saying is that they are divorcing themselves from a century of precedent that philanthropy is going to be encouraged in this country. There's a reason why there are more charitable foundations in the United States than anywhere else in the world. Mm -hmm. It's because of the charitable, deduct charitable deduction clause. And so to get rid of that is going to completely, I don't want to say completely destroy, but it's going to undermine our whole system of philanthropy in this country. Yeah. So that's why I wrote that piece in the, play, in the, pro in the program, because most people don't even think about it. Yeah, no, it's... Uh... 
we live, I feel, it's very easy to get distracted from like social issues and that being actively involved, which is, mm-hmm. uh, I'm glad you had it written. It obviously it struck a chord with me and I definitely wanted to bring it up <laughs> during the conversation because, uh, you know, yeah, just um, clarity on that. So is that, just a closure on that, is that something that they've decided on and they're still considering? Or just no, I mean, it people... gets bantered around all the time. Uh. <laughs> and I think with this next proposal, which, um, which I've not, uh, the, the administration hasn't come up with a proposal yet, um, I suspect this is going to be front and center, mm-hmm. getting rid of the charitable deduction or limiting it um, when uh, President Trump was running one of his um, Platforms. One of the ideas that he had that he espoused for tax reform was to put a limit mm-hmm. on the charitable deduction, which means that major sponsors who would, for example, underwrite or um, put money in to build a new museum or a new facility or a new YMCA, for example, yeah. They would be capped at a hundred thousand okay. dollars instead of the potential of five million or twenty million or whatever it happens to be. Yeah. So that is really a terrible idea. Okay. So that's why I'm saying, you know, that people have to be aware of this issue because we can't just say, oh, that's going to affect somebody else. Yeah. It's really going to affect not just the arts, but every nonprofit. And everyone. Everyone, <laughs> everyone bumps into a non-profit at some point. Okay, well, it's definitely something uh, you'll keep an eye out on. And like I said, I'm glad Opera Carolina and yourself was kind of involved in bringing that to the floorboard. As far as other community involvements you have, one thing I've really enjoyed are like the extra little side projects, uh, like the art, poetry, and music. Mm-hmm. I've gone to, I think it's three years running now, and they've all been very enjoyable. So can you kind of describe how your relationship started with that foundation? I forgot the name of the exact school. Well, I mean, we've got, in fact, we have our, our first art, poetry, music concert uh, this weekend at Halton uh, in collaboration with the... Uh, with the Asian community, mm-hmm. um, uh, this is a this is an idea I had, and it's it's really based on a very simple premise that in order for us to engage diverse communities, for whom going to the theater, attending opera is really not something they even consider as part of their part of their life, we have to be proactive, and we have to find ways to go into their communities and engage them. There's, there's a very simple 
um, aspect to this. As I was looking at traditional and whatever ethnic group it is, whether it's um, Latin music, whether it's traditional African-American music or Asian music, it doesn't matter. We all talk about the same things. Yes. We all talk about country. Sometimes, you know, the conversations are about losing one's country and being in exile. Sometimes it's about nature and how beautiful nature is and how it motivates us. Mm -hmm. Most of the time it's about love. Yes. We all do the same thing. And every culture talks about those basic human emotions, those basic human premises in their visual art, in their literature, and in their music. So the whole premise of the art, poetry, music performances are finding those connections yeah. between cultures, those overarching themes. So in an APM concert, for example, you'll hear a Korean song about the girl that got away. And then you'll hear an opera aria about the girl who got away. And then you'll hear a Chinese song about the girl who got away. And while we're doing that, we're, we're enhancing that with visual art, yeah. which expresses the same thing. And then having poets come and read poems which express the same basic human emotions and the whole underlying idea is that we are all the same. That humanity is one in the way we express these profound ideas. And if we can agree on that, then hopefully we become a bit more of a civil society when we recognize that we share these same human premises. Yeah, that's... Uh... Now, those nights are really remarkable. I almost consider it a cultural flight because I think that was the first time I'd ever, you know, the first time I'd ever gone, mm -hmm. saw an opera from an, uh, an art from an opera, or poetry, yeah. saw reading, saw a violin excerpt from concerto, mm -hmm. saw a dance, all in the same evening within like two, two and a half hours. They're fun, uh, also is. for that reason, because you yes. get a real smattering of, of artistic expression. Bit. Yeah, that, and this one, um, th this one, we actually have three high school students who are in Chinese immersion class who are going to be reading poems mm -hmm. oh. in, in Mandarin, which nice. is beautiful, which really, you know, emphasizes again, you know, fortunately, we're becoming much more cosmopolitan and international in our thinking mm -hmm. and our immersion schools, whether it's Chinese or German or French, you know, are really doing a great service in the internationalization of, yeah. um, of our country, which is fantastic. Yeah, I've, I've noticed that. And uh, like I said, I think like in the wake of all these political events and everything you see in the news, you can look at it one way, you can pull it by this handle and only think negatively about it. But if you, you know, just turn your head, you know, 20 degrees, it's like, but at the same time, this brought this to light and I never knew about this right. in those regards. Right. But um, speaking of, in terms of like modern opera and contemporary, uh, the last opera this season is, I believe, I Have a Dream. Uh, I Dream. I Dream. Okay. Mm -hmm. And when was that written? Is this like the you, Charlotte premiere, I imagine? Is this, uh... It was um, actually, I the let's see, where I Dream. So this, uh, this one on my desk <laughs> is that's version number four. Okay. And this is the, the final version for now. For now. <laughs> uh, we're going to actually, uh, we do a concert performance of I Dream in January in our partner company in Grand Rapids mm -hmm. and I suspect we'll make a few more changes to it after that and then we 
do the um, first staged performances in our other partner company in Toledo, Ohio in April. Uh, and we may make some changes after that before <laughs> we perform it here in May. This is being launched for the 50th commemoration of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. Mm -hmm. And it's, um, the story takes place over the last 36 hours of Dr. King's life. But there are flashbacks to the beginning of the civil rights movement. And this is not a historical representation of fact. It is a reflection on the human spirit, on the people who were involved. Dr. King's relationship with Ralph Abernathy, with Reverend Hosea Williams, with his grandmother, which is prominent, mm -hmm. uh, and with, with Coretta Scott King. And through the course of the evening, there are overarching themes that are brought in. Uh, courage, leadership, and family are the most prominent. And it's an exploration of the human spirit through the eyes of Dr. King. Yeah. It is a moving, moving experience, a moving piece that we're highly involved in, obviously, and I've been involved with now for going on two years. Mm -hmm. um, and very I, excited about this. How would you describe the music, Anticipatory? Well, it's an R&B opera. So okay. it's um, a mixture of classical, pop, jazz, rock and roll, uh, R&B. <laughs> so the pieces in it uh, have this, this really contemporary feeling and really contemporary sound to it. Within the context of the symphony orchestra that we use, there is also electric guitar, electric bass, Hammond B3 organ, and, and two keyboards, uh -huh. and a trap set, and a drum set, uh -huh. you know? Yeah. So it's, we go between these sonic worlds uh, in order to create a musical style that is extremely accessible and extremely modern, if yeah. you will. Um, so I'm really, really thrilled by it. Douglas Tappan, who is the composer and gentleman who wrote the script for it um, has done a brilliant job telling this story about these individuals and reflecting on the decisions that were made that um, eventually turned Dr. King from this preacher from Atlanta into this American icon. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's overarching for us is emphasizing to um, through our education uh, initiative that this is American history. This is American history that for a lot of young people particularly, they know very little about. Yeah. And you know, to them, uh, Dr. King is a name they see on Second Street, for example, here in Charlotte, you know? MLK Boulevard, okay, that's, I mean, that's wonderful, but we lose sight of the people who made critical decisions to take a different path to move this country forward. And so this, um, this, this piece helps us focus people's attention, which only the theater can do. Mm -hmm. You know, you can go into the theater, whether it's a spoken word or musical theater or opera, and have what we hope is a safe experience talking about very contemporary and critical issues. And that's an overarching goal for this piece. That sounds uh, very, very exciting. I'm looking forward to hear that, especially given my background in history. I would love to see that. Um, as a 
composer of traditional classical music, how did you find the approach or how are you finding the approach of this? Are you, are you approaching it the same way you would, say, Wagner's ring cycle in the sense or uh, not, I mean well, yeah, not I mean you approach, same, you approach you approach producing one. it the same way because every piece has its own character yeah you know um, and so you have to take the piece on its own merits if you True. will mm-hmm. uh, and bring it to life and that's what we're doing yeah okay is there anything uh, I guess any like closing comments anything you want to Tell people before you come to your first opera or anything. Well, you know, like that. yeah, be, you know, before you go to any uh, any opera, you should at least go on our website and read the story. Mm-hmm. Always helps to to know before you go, if you will, and and have at least some information about what you're going to see. Uh, there is so much going on in grand opera. There's, you know, you can be. I, I like to think you're assaulted by a full symphony orchestra, fantastic singing, all these visual elements that if you go in fresh, which you can, your experience is not going to be as good as it will be if you at least know the story. Yeah. And we use uh, English titles for any opera that's in a foreign language, so you can follow along just like you would in a foreign movie, but it's still better to know what's happening and yeah. which character is which and which one is in love with which one and which one hates which one and, you know, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, just to um, kind of alleviate the brain power to focus on the, the and really, you know, and I encourage people to come and try it. Yeah. You know, like um, like you would go try a new restaurant. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not going to know if you like Thai food until you actually go and try and try it. You know, so the same is to be said for the opera. That's true. Okay. Well, we definitely look forward to the upcoming 2018 season of Opera Carolina. Uh, thank you for being on the show today, James. Great. Thank <laughs> you, you, Matthew. It's a pleasure. Also, I have an Instagram and Facebook page. Uh, Serrano opens November 4th this year. And we'll see, we'll end the season with I Dream, uh, opera about Martin Luther King, complete with Hammond organs. Hammond <laughs> uh, Beefree. Excellent. All right. Thank you very much. And we'll see you next time on NCLT. Hey everyone, this is your host, Matthew Barnes of NCLT. I uh, just wanted to thank everyone for continuing to listen to the show. You can find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, iTunes. We do have a Facebook page, an Instagram, nclt.mb. Also have a Twitter account and a website, nclt.network. Not.com, not.net. Not .org, .network. Thank you, Google Domains. And uh, today we did actually feature some music from the opera Trimanisha by Scott Joplin. And it is free and open to use from the great website museopen.org. M-U-S-O-P-E-N.org. It's a great database of royalty-free music, mostly classical music. Anyone can use it. I highly recommend it. So that was the Trimonisha Overture for two flutes, two oboes, two clarinets, two bassoons, and two horns uh, from an Italian orchestra. I'll leave a link on the website. But thank you again for royalty-free music and listeners and Christopher Venezia. You have not been forgotten. Thank you, Chris, for cleaning up the audio, and we'll see y'all next time. Peace.